Welcome to Excess Returns, where we focus on what works over the long term in the markets. Join us as we talk about the strategies and tactics that can help you become a better long-term investor. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital. Hey guys, this is Justin. In this episode of Excess Returns, Jack and I discuss how investors need to be careful of falling victim to confirmation bias, which is when someone searches for and recalls information in a way that confirms or strengthens their personal beliefs. During uncertain periods, many investors are seeking out information that validates their thinking. But as we discuss, it's important to be able to understand the other side of the argument. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoy the discussion. Okay, so here we are at the end of this week. Um, Stocks have kind of bounced significantly um, off of their low, but it's been, you know, a crazy time for investors. Um, You know, we kind of came into this this week with one of the fastest, largest declines that we had seen over a short period of time um, with the market being down. I think the Dow was down maybe 35 percent peak from peak to trough from its February, February high in just, you know, basically a month. So. This is obviously a very stressful and um, uncertain time for investors, and it still is. But I think that, you know, when we when we go through things like this, there's different biases that we have as investors. Um, I mean, one is recency bias, which is basically thinking that things that have happened recently are likely to continue. Um, and that's when you're in these types of markets, those types of biases, I think recency bias in particular sort of creeps up. Um, on us, meaning we tend to think, you know, recent losses are going to continue and they might get worse. And, you know, that's something you want to try to avoid. But then there's another bias, which is confirmation bias. And that's something that you, you know, hit hit on in your article this week. So I thought maybe what we could do is talk about confirmation bias, like what it is and why you want to try to avoid that. And then also, you know, your idea on challenging some of your beliefs um, and discussing like what those what those what those sort of beliefs are, but you know, explaining why you might be wrong and acknowledging the importance of being able to know you you might be wrong. So maybe with that, I'll just sort of give it to you to talk about confirmation bias, and then we can get into some of the point the other points you made in the article. Yeah, I mean, what confirmation bias is is when I have an opinion, I want to do everything. I have this thing inside of me that makes me want to do everything possible to find to support that opinion. So I'm going to look when I read articles, I'm going to read articles that agree with me. I'm going to surround myself in my life with people that agree with me. I'm going to on social media, on Twitter, on Facebook, I'm going to follow people who agree with me. And so what happens is this loop develops where all I'm getting is information that confirms what I already think. And in normal times, that's a major problem because it, it, it prevents you from being able to see the other side of the argument. But in times like these where stresses are high and people have really strong opinions and polarization is way up, it can be a much bigger problem because not only are we dealing with some major issues, both obviously in the world, but also in investing. But you know, in addition to that, our emotions are running so high that we're not able to see those, those issues clearly. You know, we, we tend to continue to surround ourselves with people who just agree with our opinion and we don't see the other side at a time where maybe it's the most important of any time to see the other side. I say, I think like what happens too in periods like this is investors are looking for and seeking out answers. So, you know, you're much more likely to be tuning in, let's say to CNBC or Fox business or something. And, you know, 
a lot of people have a lot of different opinions, but you're most likely to gravitate or, you know, mostly agree with the people's opinions that you agree with. Um, and that's the confirmation bias, like at its finest. And I think to your point, it becomes, you know, it becomes more during these types of periods when there's a lot of uncertainty and people are looking for answers. Yeah. So for example, if I think the market, if I think this is a great buying opportunity, which we'll talk about later, but if I think that and I go watch CNBC and they've got a guy making the bull case and they've got a guy making the bear case, I am automatically going to come out of that argument thinking about, you know, supporting the guy that has the bull case just because that's what I thought going into the argument. And so that's what confirmation bias is. You know, I'm, I'm going to ignore the points or, you know, try to discount the points of the guy making the bear argument. And I'm going to listen to the guy that makes the bull argument. And I'm going to come out of that no matter who has the better case, I'm going to come out of that thinking the same thing I thought and probably thinking it more strongly than I thought it in the first place. Right. So um, one of the, I guess, beliefs you had sort of coming into this period as you were sort of educating yourself on the coronavirus and as we were discussing it day in and day out is that, you know, to get out of it, you sort of were thinking that based on, you know, your own opinions and what you were reading that we needed to shut down the economy, you know, for a fairly, fairly long period of time, Correct. Yeah, you know, obviously you and I are not ex experts in the coronavirus by any stretch, but w when you do follow people who know about this, it does seem that social distancing, at least of the tools we have available to us right now, social distancing is the only tool we have that has a chance of success. You know, right now there's not a treatment out there, or at least it, it hasn't been made public. I mean, people, there, there are some drugs people are optimistic about, but there does not seem right now to be a widespread treatment that can keep people out of ICUs, that can keep people off ventilators, that can keep people from dying. So the only way it seems like for us to deal with this is to just separate ourselves as much as we possibly can and probably to do that for a long period of time. And so that's sort of my opinion based on what I've reviewed is that this might be a very long period of time where we all have to separate ourselves. And, and I think at the end of the day, that may be the correct opinion, but there is another side to that argument. And that's what I was trying to get at the article. I may have, I may have a strong opinion that this social distancing may have to go on for a really long time, but there is a price we're paying and it's not just an economic price we're paying. I mean, you know, things like depression, things like suicide, those things are likely to go up a lot the more you keep people isolated to themselves in their houses. And so there's not just going to be an economic toll, there's going to be a human toll, there's going to be a death toll. It's probably not near the death toll of the coronavirus if we let it spread, you know, unregulated, but there is a toll to be taken here. And I think it's important just for all of us to understand that there, there are two sides to this argument. And, you know, if, if you tend to just follow people who agree with you, and especially in something as highly charged as this, you can get in these brutal battles where people are going back and forth and saying, you know, I, I know the answer and I don't want to even consider the other side of it. And I think as much as I'm a huge believer in this social distancing and I think that's what's going to have to be done, I do want to read people who say, all right, maybe we can get this thing going faster than we thought or, you know, maybe there's something else going on. So I, I do want to read people who disagree with me. And that, that's the point I was making in the article. Yeah, and I think what's come, you know, what we've realized now just in the past week that certain in industries are just getting decimated here. You know, hopefully it's just a temporary thing, but whether you're talking airlines, hotels, obviously the cruise business, and that's the reality of the situation, but there's obviously, and this is on the economic side, there's a significant amount of economic pain that, you know, our country is going to have to deal with here in the short run because of, because of the shutdown, because of social distancing. And that's just, that's the way the cards have fallen. That's the reality of the situation. But, you know, that's, I guess, the, the trade-off of, of doing this. If you're going to pick lives or economy, obviously you're going to pick lives every single time. 
But there is a toll beyond the economy that we're going to start to feel here. And and if this thing goes on for months and months and is not a you know a thing of you know a month or two, that that toll is probably going to be bigger than maybe we think it's going to be because we probably can't even predict what that's going to be because this is something we've never done before. Mm-hmm. Um, your next point was you know given the decline in stocks and the where valuations have you know come in that you know this is looks like um, your your normal belief is that you know periods like this tend to look like a great buying opportunity for investors, but you also sort of presented what could be the other side of that. So you want to just shake that out? Yeah, you know, if you look back at any panic historically, they were always long-term buying opportunities. I mean, we've never had, we've had some really bad situations in the Great Depression, but if you were, if you had a very long-term time horizon and you bought during these periods, you've always done well. And so that's my belief. My belief is that I have no idea where the market's going in the next month or the next six months or the next year, but somebody with a five plus year time horizon is likely to do very well buying, you know, where we are here, 20% plus off the highs. So that that's what I believe going in. But I also want to be able to take a look at the other side of that argument. And just because it's worked historically doesn't mean there aren't arguments against it. And so in this case, if I was going to try to make the arguments against the fact that you should be buying during panics like this, one, the first thing I'd look at is the market's not, was not cheap coming into this. The market was very expensive. The market is still probably at, you know, maybe like an average type valuation. It's not, we're not looking at, t- for a market cap weighted index, we're not looking at 2008 here. We're not looking at a period where the entire market is really, really cheap. And so, you know, that's one reason why even with this decline, we might see further declines. Um, another reason is obviously we're dealing with a medical situation here that is completely unpredictable. To, to figure out where the market is going in the future, you probably need to know how long we're going to be shut down. You probably need to know what the implications beyond that, how long this is going to drag on, whether this is going to be something where we start back up and things start going smoothly right away, or whether this is going to be something that's going to drag on for a long period of time. So if you're looking at a P.E. ratio, the E right now is pretty much unknowable. Anybody who's even trying to guess what the E is going to look like going forward probably doesn't know, you know, doesn't know what they're talking about. And that's not just the E in this this year where it's really uncertain but even in future years we don't know how fast we come off of this we don't know you know some people have been saying all right this will be over and we'll be back to a normal situation in 2021 other people have said you know there's going to be a lingering effect of this and we're going to be down for a while in earnings and so all of those things mean this maybe even though every panic historically has been a buying opportunity maybe this one's a little bit different i mean obviously eventually it'll be a buying opportunity but maybe you know 25 30% down it's not a buying opportunity and we've got a lot further to go yeah, that was the point that Nir Kassar made, at least on valuations. If you look at like the market's valuation, where we are today after the decline versus, you know, where we bottomed in 08, you know, we were a lot, lot cheaper in 08. Um, and, you know, maybe what that means is that if, you know, this is just really short-term temporary thing, then we come out of it, um, where that was more of a actual like deleveraging and resulted in a really bad recession. Um, that's why the valuation got that low. I mean, who knows? But, you know, the point is, is that, market cap weighted index, like you were saying, you know, we're nowhere near the 10 or 11 times earnings, I think, something like that, that we got um, in, at, at, at the low and away. I think, you know, basically, we might be at a multiple of like, like you said, the normal average multiple of the market historically um, today. Yeah. And, you know, and we're just dealing with some, something that's completely unprecedented. So it's really, really hard to try to predict anything right now, because when have we ever shut down our economy 
for an unknown period of time before. We've never done it before. And so earnings are going to be very unpredictable. How this is going to play out is going to be very unpredictable. And so what I like to do in a situation like this is go back to base rates, go back to history and say, what has happened in past panics like this? And if you bought during panics like this and you had a five plus year time horizon, you've done very, very well. And so that, that's my personal opinion that that's probably going to be the case here. But as I said before, there are definitely arguments to be made that there are different things going on here. We, it was expensive. You know, we are dealing with something that's unprecedented. And so maybe this situation will be different than what's played out in the past. And that was my point I was trying to make in the article is I want to be able to argue the other side of that, even though I might think it's a buying opportunity. Yeah. And by the way, there's not a lot of people look at like 1987 as a parallel to this. Or I think like in the early 80s where we had, you know, um, sky high inflation and you know, they basically were trying to control that. So whatever the federal government or the Fed did at that point, you know, but each, you know, each situation is actually different. And we haven't ever had a situation in which, you know, the economy has basically completely shut down. So there, the sample size of these other um, periods where this has happened, you know, isn't very large. We don't have that many crises to really draw from. Probably there's like, you know, a, maybe a dozen or maybe, there, depending on how you define them, there may be like, you know, maybe between a dozen and 20 different examples historically where you can look back and say, you know, this is how the market performed after those periods. But the point is that everyone is different and the situation we're in now is obviously very different as well. So moving on to your moving on to your next point that you had in the article that, you know, your belief was particularly with small cap value and given how long small cap value has underperformed and also the valuations in small cap value that, you know, this is likely to be, you know, a really good opportunity to be allocating to that type of area of the market. But there was also sort of a counter that you had to your own belief. Yeah, there's two ways you can look at what's going on with small cap value right now. If you're a believer in base rates, if you're a believer that history tells us something about what's going to happen in the future, it's hard not to look at this as a generational buying opportunity in small cap value. You know, on an absolute basis, small, we talked before about how the market itself is expensive, a market cap weighted index. Well, small cap value on an absolute basis is down to very close to where it was in 2008. So although the market's nowhere near where it was in 2008, if you look at that bottom 10% cheapest percent of stocks, that's right back to where it was in 2008. And then on a relative basis, relative to say large cap growth stocks, Small cap value stocks are very close to where they were in 2000, which was a huge bottom for small cap value stocks. So if you're going to look at past data and say, when we were in this situation, what happened going forward, you're going to think this is a generational buying opportunity in small cap value stocks. But the flip side is, if you're a believer that something has changed here, and you know, I wrote an article a while back called The Case Against Value Stocks, where I talked about some of these things, but if you're a believer that sometimes we have these events that end up being breaking points in history where all the history before that is no longer relevant, you know, and that could be things that have gone on with technology, that could be what the Fed's done in terms of quantitative easing. It could even be the coronavirus because in a lot of ways these small cap value companies are going to be the ones that are going to be the most affected by the coronavirus. So if you're a believer that we have these breaking points where you can no longer rely on your historical base rate data, then you can argue small cap value is not cheap, even though it looks like a generational buying opportunity because there's all these headwinds these companies are facing right now that they just aren't going to be able to overcome. You're going to have a lot of bankruptcies in small cap value, and it's just not going to come back. And so as much as I'm a believer that this is a generational buying opportunity in small cap value, I want to be able to look at that other side of the argument and say there are reasons to believe that that historical data may not be as valuable as we think it is. What do you think 
if you're the type of investor that is able to, you know, have a sort of strong belief, but able to see the other side, I mean, what is the, is there like a tactical or, um, you know, actionable thing that you can implement an investment strategy? Or is this really just more of a thought provoking exercise that is good to do? And it's good to be aware of your biases that you might have. For me, I find a few things are helpful. One is what we're doing right now, which is you and I are sitting here and talking about it, and I'm trying to make a case that is the opposite case of what I actually think. And I think that's important because that allows you to actually think through it. You know, I also find writing down the case is really helpful because that helps me to sort of see in like a bullet-pointed format the arguments against what I'm doing. But you're right. I mean, at some point, it has to be put into implementation, and you have to make a decision. All right, I'm this big believer in small-cap value. Do I abandon that belief? And that's the hardest part. It's, it's easy to do what we're doing now and to try to make the case against it. It's easy to write it down. The hardest thing to do is to actually say, all right, you know, I've been this guy who's been out here publicly supporting small cap value for a really long period of time. I'm going to flip now and I'm going to say I no longer believe in small cap value. And I haven't reached that point, but, you know, it's hard for me to tell how much of the fact that I haven't reached that point is my confirmation bias and how much of that is because the facts, you know, the long-term facts really do support small cap value. So it's really difficult to do. I mean, those are a few things I do, but it's, it's something that's very, very hard to do. It kind of reminds me a little bit of like Buffett when, you know, in his early days as an investor, he was obviously a deep, deep value investor, basically emulating Benjamin Graham. And then Buffett met Munger and Munger sort of convinced him that, you know, you want to buy great quality companies at reasonable prices and just, you know, have those companies compound out for you. You're really not looking for the home run value stock as much as you are just the compounding machine type of company. Um, so, you know, I think when the facts changed in Buffett's mind, he was able to change his investment philosophy to better align with, you know, where he thought think, where he thought he could, you know, find an advantage in the market and have an edge. So, I mean, maybe that's a, a, a sort of a concrete example of, you know, an investor that, when presented with a different set of facts, you know, was able to pivot his strategy and become one of the greatest investors in the world with the track record that he's accumulated. Anyway, so that's just. Yeah, and, you know, that's the exception rather than the rule. You know, if, if you become known for something in terms of the way you invest, to actually shift that, especially when you've been out publicly and saying, you know, this is really what I believe, to be able to shift that is really, really hard mm -hmm. um, because you're, you're obviously going to – your reputation is, could take a significant hit. If you've been saying for the, the whole time, you know, this is what I think you should do, I'm this small cap value guy, and now suddenly at a certain point the facts don't support it, and now I'm changing that. That's really, really hard to do, and it's, you know, Buff, it's great that Buffett was able to do it, but most people are not able to do that. Right, right. Okay, so I, I mean I think that's a good discussion uh, for this week. Hopefully people found some value in this. I mean I think it's just, you know, be aware of those confirmation biases that exist. Um, being able to see the other side like we've talked about today is certainly important. But also keep in mind that, you know, the implementation of these things isn't easy and it's that's a challenge for a lot of investors. But, you know, I think that those if you can take something away from this, something, you know, from this podcast, then hopefully that's that's great. So anything else you think you wanna add here? No, yeah, I think your point is good. You know, it's, it's just really important, especially during times like these, to be able to say, all right, I may have this strong opinion, but at least let's look at the other arguments. Let's look at what other people are saying, and, you know, maybe I can at least incorporate that into what I'm thinking. Great. Okay. Well, thank you for joining us this week. We'll see you next time. Thank you. Hi, guys. This is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Excess Returns. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at @practicalquant. And follow me on Twitter at, at JJ Carbonell. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, 
please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube or leave a review or a comment. We appreciate it.